Um, at any rate, um, I'm privileged and uh, really, really excited to be able to gather with y'all today as we, uh, we journey through week six of our series called Peaks and Valleys, where really what we've been doing is looking at several of the episodes in the life of David. And today we're going to look at a chapter of his life that deals with a very specific kind of relationship. And, and frankly, I think this is the type of relationship, um, one that we really just underestimate how important and integral it is in our lives. And that type of relationship is friendship. And, and I'm not sure if you've ever really thought about it in these terms, but Christianity has a really rich heritage of friendship that's primarily influenced by um, the really high view of friendship that Jesus himself had. And so for centuries, Christians have viewed friendship as one of the primary formative factors in their lives. Um, but, but, but the reality is Christians aren't really the only ones that, that see it that way. In fact, modern psychology asserts some of the same things that Christians assert um, and what they assert is that it's critical to every area of our lives, our emotional development, our spiritual development. Um, they even assert that it's critical to our overall human survival and physical well-being. And back in 2010, there were a handful of psychologists that published a bunch of research about the correlation between our physical health and the quality of our relationships. And here's one of the conclusions that they drew. Uh, they, they said that in, the, in, in these various studies, they all were kind of concluding the same thing, but one of them concluded this, that, that loneliness. So in other words, a life void of healthy, intimate friendships is as detrimental to your health, wait for it, as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. All that to say is, uh, to, 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 to really just say, friendship is highly integral to our well-being. And it, but despite that, I think the average person living in our context, in our culture, really struggles to find and maintain lasting, healthy relationships. And uh, one of the things that I think we're experiencing as a culture right now, maybe you've experienced this in some of your relationships, is like an overarching fracture of relationships. And uh, people attribute this to the pandemic or the global health crisis that we're we're still waiting through, and, and I'm sure you've, you've noticed that some of the friendships you had prior to the pandemic really just haven't lasted through all the disagreements and the doubts and the stress and the challenges and the different ways that people have chosen to, to navigate this global health crisis that we're in. But I just want to offer something a, a little bit different than that. I want to offer you a different perspective because I think, I really think that the fracture of relationships has a lot less to do with the adversity we face and a lot more to do with the fact that the way that we approach friendships just isn't working. And frankly, we need an alternative that isn't going to fall apart, an alternative to friendships to the degree that they're not going to fall apart every time we face adversity. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at four passages from 1 Samuel. And together, these four passages provide us with the, the narrative arc of one of the most famous and, and arguably one of the most healthy relationships in the entire Bible. It's the relationship between these two men, Jonathan and David. And I think it's important that if we want to have healthy friendships, that we discover what a healthy friendship looks like. And, and um, from my vantage point, I think our culture really struggles to provide us with the resources or, or alternatives to relationships that are overly helpful. And I think that's especially the case when it comes to relationships uh, between two men. I, I think that, that the, the concept of closeness and intimacy and commitment 
that's shared between two men is so foreign to our culture, um, we tend to sexualize relationships like that or see it through these weird lenses and call it something that it's not. Or if we're not doing that, we assume that people who are that close and that intimate and that connected agree on everything, see everything the same way, never have any, any disagreements or never have any conflict in the context of that relationship. But the point I'm really driving at is I really don't think we realize how important healthy friendships are because it's probably not what most of us have experienced in our lives. And I think that, that fact, if it is a fact, I'm arguing that it's a fact, I think it's what makes this ancient story about friendship so relevant to our lives today. And so we're going to look at the story of the friendship between Jonathan and David. We're going to use that to look at friendship from three angles. We're going to look at the importance of friendship. We're going to look at the elements of friendship. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the power source of friendship. And just, just as a little disclosure, I'm going to hop around to four different texts. We're going to have them up on the screens, uh, but don't feel pressured to keep up. They're in, they're in like four different chapters of 1 Samuel. Just wanted to say that before we get into it. I'm going to start in uh, 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. This is kind of where Jonathan and David's friendship starts. And here's what it says. It says, when David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan committed himself to David and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now we're going to pivot over to 1 Samuel 19. I'm in verse 4. And it says, Jonathan spoke well of David to his father Saul. He said to him, the king should not sin against his servant David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been of great advantage to you. He took his life in his hands when he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. So why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan's advice and swore an oath. As surely as the Lord lives... David will not be killed. So Jonathan summoned David and told him all these words. Then Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he served him as he did before. Now we're over in 1 Samuel 20. I'm in verse 40. It says, Then Jonathan gave his equipment to the young man who was with him and said, Go, take it back to the city. When the young man had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone Ezel, fell with his face to the ground and bowed three times. Then he and Jonathan kissed each other and wept with each other, though David wept more. Jonathan then said to David, Go in the assurance the two of us pledged in the name of the Lord when we said the Lord will be a witness between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Then David left and Jonathan went into the city. And now this, this last uh, little passage, it's in 1 Samuel 23, verses 15 through 18. This is the end point of their relationship. This was the last time David and Jonathan would have seen each other. And it says, David was in the wilderness of Ziph and Horesh when he saw that Saul had come out to take his life. Then Saul's son Jonathan came to David in Horesh and encouraged him in his faith in God, saying, Don't be afraid, for my father Saul will never lay a hand on you. You yourself will be king over Israel, and I'll be your second in command. Even my father Saul knows it's true. Then the two of them made a covenant in the Lord's presence. Afterward, David remained in Horesh while Jonathan went home. So that, these four passages, when you put them together, what you really have is, is the narrative arc of 
from start to finish of this friendship between Jonathan and David. And what, what, it, what it highlights overarchingly is the importance of friendship. And, and so I just want to unpack a little bit about what's going on here. So after David kills Goliath, Saul, Jonathan, and the entire like, universe became immediately aware that David wasn't just some teenage shepherd boy who caught a lucky break. And, and, and uh, what King Saul and Jonathan could see more clearly than anyone else was the fact, and, and this was the same thing that the prophet Samuel saw, was that God had a special anointing on David's life, that he was destined for greatness, that he was destined to a high-level leadership, and that one day David would actually become the king of one of the most powerful nations in the world. Uh, now, now, how King Saul and Jonathan respond to what they perceive about God's anointing on David's life is radically conflicting. You see, they both perceive this anointing, but Saul rejects it. Whereas Jonathan, what he does is he ends up aligning his entire life around it. And so uh, I think it's important to note that Jonathan, Saul's son, he's, he's the next in line as heir to the throne of the kingdom of Israel. And so he would have had every reason to feel threatened by David uh, with regards to this anointing, but he doesn't. And in verse 18, what we see is that Jonathan loved David as much as he loved himself. And so he ends up establishing a covenant with David. And, and I think it's important that we understand what that means because this idea of covenant, I think it could just be such a foreign concept uh, to people like us. Um, and, and the reason I'm saying that is I think a lot of times in, in our culture or in our lives in particular, we, we end up basing our commitments, uh, we make them highly transactional, meaning we base our commitments on somebody else's ability to, to live up to our expectations or to deliver something that we believe they owe us in the context of a relationship. A covenant's radically different because what a covenant is, is it's an enduring faithfulness. It's an unwavering commitment that's not based on what the other person brings to the relationship. And, and this, this, this idea of covenant, this unwavering commitment, and this enduring faithfulness becomes abundantly clear when Jonathan takes off his royal robe and he turns over his royal military equipment to David. This would have been the equivalent of Jonathan literally taking the crown off of his own head and placing it on David's. He was taking everything that was rightfully his and turning it over to David. And when he did that, what he was doing is he was committing all of his strength, all of his commitment, all of his skill, and ultimately all of his, his life to David. And as the story unfolds, what becomes abundantly clear is that Jonathan wasn't doing this to work some angle with David because he thought that one day he would be king. You have to remember that at this point in the narrative, David's not the king of Israel. And in fact, he's just moments away from becoming public enemy number one. Saul gets so envious and, and in angered towards David that he puts out a hit on his life. And, and, and what we see Jonathan doing time and time again, it's he's the one who risks his reputation. He's the one who risks his life to advocate for his friend David. And for a season, you know, the heat kind of gets turned down and that seems to work. But eventually it gets to the point where Saul's made up his mind and David has to die. And I think this is, this is where we, we see a deeper level of commitment in Jonathan because it, it would have been really reasonable for him to just kind of backpedal on his commitment and rethink things and just, 
really resigned to the fact that his dad was in the, you know, the highest seat of power and it was only a matter of time before King Saul's hitmen were going to take David out. But, but that's not how Jonathan responds to this at all. What Jonathan does, and we see it in 1 Samuel 23, verse 18, he actually renews his covenant of friendship with David, and it's that that actually gets Jonathan killed. And so when we zoom out of this season of David's life, what I think we find is that it's Jonathan's friendship that insulated him from all the, the, the evil and, and envy of King Saul. It insulated him from all the adversity that he faced in his life. And really, in my mind, the only reason David got through this most dangerous, perilous season in his life was because of the friendship he had with Jonathan. And so this, this narrative arc, this start-to-finish look at this relationship between Jonathan and David shows us the importance of friendship. And then if, if, if we, if we fast-forward to the New Testament in John chapter 15, what we'll find there is a transcript of some things that Jesus himself said about friendship and how important it is. And uh, in, in that particular passage of Scripture, really what Jesus is doing is he's showing us how he relates to us as friends, and he's also pointing out how we're supposed to relate to each other as friends. And here's what he says in verse 12. Jesus says, this is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you slaves anymore because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my Father. Now, there, there are two things that I just I want to point out really quickly about what Jesus is saying, and I think they highlight the importance of friendship. When, when Jesus says no one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends, I think what he's getting at is that it's impossible to get through life without adversity. If that weren't the case... You, wouldn't, you would never need anybody sacrificing for you or laying down their life for you. I think parenting would be a heck of a lot easier, frankly. I, don't, I think we'd be making a lot less sacrifices if we could get through life without adversity. But I think the other thing that Jesus is pointing out is that the only way you're going to make it through the adversity you face in this life is through friendship. And so if you want to make it through pandemics and you want to make it through loss and you want to make it through grief and you want to make it through that breakup or that disappointment or the financial unrest that you're experiencing or all the ups and downs or the adversity in your life, the point is you're going to need friends. So that's the importance of friendship. Now I want to show you the elements of it. And so if, um, if friendship is indeed important, I think it's imperative that we understand what it is. And there are three elements of friendship that I see in this relationship between David and Jonathan. I just want to share them with you, and they're this. They're commitment, transparency, and sympathy. And so first, we're going we're gonna to unpack commitment. And to do that, turn over to 1 Samuel 18. I'm in verse 1. It says, when David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan committed himself to David and loved him as much as he loved himself. I think, I think that there's a word in there that we really have a hard time understanding as people who are steeped in individualism and consumerism and all the other isms that our culture throws our way. And, and the word there is commitment. And there's a, there's a Hebrew word for the kind of commitment that Jonathan has to David. The Hebrew word is hased. And here it's the kind of commitment that's based on a deep love and loyalty, that, and it's marked by action. And so it literally means 
Here's what this word hased means. Here's what this commitment literally means. It literally means to intervene on behalf of loved ones and come to their rescue. And this type of commitment, I don't think you have to be a rocket science to figure out that it's costly. And here's why it's costly. It's not based on reciprocation. And one of the reasons why I think we struggle with this kind of commitment is because we're not immune to the culture that we live in. I think many of us were raised in and we're still navigating individualist, consumeristic culture that places a really high value on personal expression and personal preferences over or at the expense of interpersonal relationships. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to go through life with this mindset that says, we can be friends as long as we agree. We can be friends as long as you validate my personal expression, as long as you validate my personal preferences, as long as it doesn't cost me anything, as long as it enhances my reputation. We can be friends as long as I get more out of the relationship than I have to put into it. And, and, and when we approach people like this, what we end up doing is we're always calculating and trying to figure out if it's worth it. And I just want to offer you this to think about. If your friendships are based on some weird algorithm that doesn't la allow the other person to disagree with you or to make mistakes or to interrupt your schedule or to cost you anything, I think it's dishonest to call that a friendship. Any relationship that's not based on commitment, in my opinion, is not, it's not a friendship. Commitment, and, and here's what commitment doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that both people are making the same level of contribution. What it means is that both people are com more committed to the other person than they are themselves. And I, I'm, I'm sure maybe either you or someone you know has had an experience in life where you went through something that just completely shattered your reality. And when the dust settled and you looked up, what you noticed was all the people you thought were your friends had completely disappeared. Look, people that do that to you aren't your friends, right? A friend is someone who sticks around. And this is what Proverbs 18.24 gets at. Here's what it says. It says, an unreliable friend, soon, uh, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Did you pick up on that? Unreliable friends can ruin the quality of our life. And I think we like to think of that as, oh, well, I got to stay away from unreliable friends. What I'm asking you to consider is, are you a reliable friend? Because if you're an unreliable friend, you can actually ruin the quality of someone else's life. However, it also says that true friends can quantifiably improve it. And so I think that the kind of friends we need, if we're going to make it through all this adversity that we face, are the kind of people who are more committed to our well-being than they are their own. That's the first element of friendship, commitment. The second is transparency. We're going to uh, pick up in 1 Samuel 18, verse 3. It says, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as he loved himself. Um, now, to love someone as much as you love yourself, it means that you love someone to the degree that you let them all the way in to your life. And the only way to do that is by being transparent about what's actually going on in your life. And I'm not just talking about the external challenges you face. I'm talking about the internal struggles that you have as well. And, 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 and what this kind of transparency really means is vulnerability. It means letting people in. 
Uh, and and I, I think this can be one of the hardest things to do in the context of any relationship because it takes a deep sense of security and it also takes a deep sense of trust to be transparent about your emotions or your decisions or your flaws or your convictions. You ever, you ever been in a situation where um, you thought you were really, really close to someone and then you discovered they made a major decision without ever running it by you? You ever been in a situation like that? Right? And here, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying people don't have the, the right to make their own decisions. I'm not, I'm not arguing that at all. Ultimately, people have, they can make their own decisions. What I am saying is that if you're making life-changing decisions and you're not taking the time to run it by the people you call your friends, you're not taking the time to be open about your emotions or the values that maybe are driving that decision, or your motives, if you're not willing to take the time to seek a little bit of advice before you make that decision, I think it's dishonest to pretend like you're being transparent. I'd say that's the opposite of transparency. And, and I think there's a reason why we struggle with transparency. I think some of us struggle to be transparent because we've had experiences where we put our guard down, we, we got completely vulnerable, and when we opened up about our emotions or our flaws or how something the other person did actually hurt us or impacted us in a negative way, or maybe we got vulnerable and transparent enough to where we thought it was time to address an area of their life that needed to change, what ended up happening is we were, all of that, that transparency, that vulnerability was met with rejection and retaliation, and we were penalized for it. But even if that hasn't been the case in your life, I'm just going to level with you. I don't particularly like the idea of giving anyone open access to what's really going on in my heart. And I don't have a complicated reason for that. I just, I just don't like everything that's going on in my heart, right? I, I'm not comfortable with it. So I don't really want to let people in on it. And because there's a part of me that finds it hard to believe that if you knew my fears and you heard my doubts and you could see my struggles, that it wouldn't somehow change your perception of me. But, but, but that's not the point. The point is this, that a friend is someone who's transparent. They always let you in. And what that means is they let you in on what's, going, what's actually going on in their life, and they give you permission to speak into their life. And I don't want to pretend like this isn't hard. This takes a great deal of vulnerability and the only thing that I could think of that creates space for vulnerability is trust. And I think one of the best ways to build trust and create vulnerability, create space for vulnerability in your relationships is to learn how to listen to understand. And, and I think this can seem so foreign to us because uh, self-included here, we can be lousy listeners, right? Listening to understand is not the same as letting someone else talk and then clapping back with six reasons why they're wrong or how they need to change. That's not the same as listening to understand. Trying to, listening to prove someone wrong is not listening to understand. Or listening to point out their flaws is not the same thing as listening to understand. I think doing that is one of the quickest ways to make it impossible for people to be transparent with you. What I'm not saying is that there's never a time for you to speak the truth in love. What I am saying is you got to listen for a long time before you get to that point. That's at least what I'm suggesting. And so if you want to listen to understand, what that means is we have to approach people in a different way. We have to make ourselves available to people as loving, attentive, interested friends. 
That means approaching people with a real genuine curiosity about their story, about their fears, about their hopes, about their struggles, about their experiences, about their aspirations, about their convictions. And I think one of the ways that you can discover whether or not you're a good listener is when your friends begin to feel like you know their story as well as they do. And so if you, wanna, if, if you want people to let you in, if you want people to be transparent with you, I think you have to learn to listen to understand. And so before we move on, I want to tie these, these, uh, these two elements that we've covered together um, and, and just kind of give you something to think about. And so transparency means a friend is someone who always lets you in. It means they're vulnerable. It means they're open. Uh, and commitment means a friend is someone who never lets you down. They show up to celebrate your successes, and they show up to hold you together no matter how messy life gets. Transparency it's what's going to allow you to actually begin to see the blind spots in your life and maybe address the areas in your life that need to change. And commitment, I think it's commitment, that's the ingredient of friendship that's going to help you get through the adversity of life. There's a guy by the name of Tim Keller. He kind of tied the, he talked about these two things at length, and I think he does a far better job than I'll ever do talking about friendship. But he took these two ideas of commitment and transparency, and he tied them together. And here's what he said. He said, a friend is someone who always lets you in and never lets you down. So that's commitment and transparency. Those things together mean a friend is someone who always lets you in and never lets you down. And so those are the first two elements of friendship. But the third is sympathy. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 20. I'm in verse 42. It says, Jonathan then said to David, go in the assurance the two of us pledged in the name of the Lord when we said, the Lord will be a witness between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Now, when I say sympathy, I'm talking about that in a literal sense, and I'm talking about common passions. And the common passion that David and Jonathan shared is that they both loved God and that they both wanted to see his good and perfect intentions for the world unfold in a way that would absolutely heal and revolutionize Israel as a people. And through Israel, heal and revolutionize the entire world. And it was this common purpose that they shared that created space in Jonathan's life and compelled Jonathan to sacrifice everything he deserved, everything that was rightfully his, not just to accept that God had appointed David to be king of Israel in the future, but to align his life, his influence, his resources, everything that he had to align all of that in supporting what God was going to do through David. And now what's, what's really unique in my mind about passions is that you don't create them, you discover them. And so Jonathan and David didn't create this, any of the ideas about God's good and perfect intentions. And they didn't create the idea that David would someday be king. That was something that they discovered. David heard it first when the prophet Samuel anointed him. And then Jonathan discovered it in the aftermath of David slaying Goliath and rescuing the entire nation of Israel from the Philistines. You see, passions aren't something you create. There's something you discover. And when two people discover that they share a common passion, I think there's potential for a really powerful, life-giving friendship. And when you couple shared passion 
with, commit, with a commitment that can carry you through the adversity of life and the transparency that will allow you to address the areas of your life that need to change without any fear of retribution or rejection or retaliation. I think what you have is a powerful, healthy, life-giving friendship. And so we, we've taken the time to look at the importance of friendship We've looked at the elements of friendship, and now we're going to take a peek at the power source of friendship. See, th- this story about Jonathan and David's uh, friendship, it, it's, it, it's from 1100 B.C. It's, it's like a more than 3,000-year-old ancient story. And here's what it's about. It's about what can happen in our lives when we have friends that are so committed, they're willing to intervene on our behalf and show up for us no matter how messy things get. It's a story about what happens when we have friends who create space for us to be completely transparent without any fear of rejection, retaliation, or retribution. It's a story that shows us how friendship is such an integral part of what it means to be human. And it's a story that shows us that although it might be impossible to make it through life without any adversity, friendship makes it possible to get through all the adversity that we face in this life. And so if we want to apply this ancient story to our lives, I think it's important that we, we discover and we understand how to find the strength to be the kind of friends that always let people in and never let people down. And we have this, there's an amazing example in Jonathan. His, his friendship with David cost him his position in society. It cost him his reputation. And eventually, it cost him his life. And, and when you take the time to explore the life of Jonathan, what, he, what we see is that he absolutely destroys our paradigm for commitment. And, and based on the position that he was in, he's part of the royal household. He's the rightful heir to the throne of the kingdom of Israel. So he was in a position where it would have been really easy for him to just get, it, get in on King Saul, his dad's plot, to eliminate David, all for the sake of self-preservation. But he doesn't do that. He was also in, in, a, in a very unique position to where he had such open access to David. He could have convinced David that it's time to launch a coup and, and, and take over the throne of Israel through violence and strength, to usurp King Saul and just, you know, accelerate what, what, what uh, the prophet Samuel had prophesied earlier, just accelerate that process and and bring it home now. But he doesn't do that either. And both of the options that Jonathan had, they were very common practice in Near East culture. They would have made sense to anyone, you know, to anyone who was advising him on what his next move should be, but he doesn't do any of that. Jonathan refuses to play to the expectations of the culture, and because of that, he's able to, and maybe the next thing I'm going to say, maybe it's hard to see, but because he doesn't play to the expectations of the culture, Jonathan is actually able to maintain this deep level of loyalty and commitment, not just to David, but to King Saul as well. Um, All throughout this, this narrative arc, Jonathan is intervening on both of their behalf. He's, he's putting his life on the line for both of them. Every time he intervenes, he's protecting David's life 
for this, from this assassin, assassination plot. And every time he intervenes, he really is trying to protect his dad, King Saul, from committing treason against the God of heaven, the one who appointed David to be king of Israel. And Jonathan is demonstrating this unwavering commitment to the people he loved, and that's what ends up costing him his life. And so Jonathan, he's this amazing example of a friend. But if we want to be the kind of friends that always let people in and never let people down, we've got to look to the greater friend that this story of Jonathan points to, and that's Jesus. You see, eventually every friendship that we have will come to a close, and that's, that's what's happening in 1 Samuel chapter 23. We're going we're gonna to read verse 15, and in, in this, I mentioned this earlier, this was the last time David and Jonathan would see each other. And what happens in this scene, I think what it does is unlocks and helps us see the power source of friendship. Pick up with me in verse 15. It says, David was in the wilderness of Ziph and Horesh when he saw that Saul had come out to take his life. Then Saul's son Jonathan came to David in Horesh and encouraged him in his faith in, in God. Now, in, in going to David, Jonathan was literally risking everything. His reputation, his life, his future, all of it was on the line. And when we read that Jonathan encouraged David in his faith, there's something really, really powerful at work there. Jonathan was recognizing that as much as he loved David, as much as he had given his life to protect David, David needed a power and a presence in his life beyond anything that Jonathan could offer him. Jonathan knew that his friendship could only get David so far. And so he takes David's hand out of his and he places it in God's hand. That's what it means when, when, when we read that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. And when he does this, it becomes abundantly clear that Jonathan knew God's power and presence is, the, is really the only thing that can carry us through this life. And the reason why Jonathan's friendship with David was so powerful was because it was fueled by the power and presence of God at work in his own life. And the reason this ancient 3,000-year-old story is so relevant to us today isn't because of the example we find in Jonathan. It's because Jonathan's friendship points to an even more powerful friend, Jesus. Look, Jonathan's life really is what insulated David's life from all the adversity he faced. It's what carried him through the most dangerous, perilous time in his life. And just like David's life was saved through Jonathan's sacrificial friendship, we can be saved through Jesus' sacrificial friendship. When Jesus was on the cross, he demonstrated the greatest act of friendship in the history of the world. Every single account of his execution tell us that every last one of his friends abandoned him. The moment he was chained and thrown in prison, the moment it looked like Jesus could no longer live up to their expectations was the moment they abandoned him. And when he was marched through the streets of Jerusalem and then nailed to the cross, he was surrounded by people who were mocking him and shouting him down and trying to cancel him entirely. And these were people, they had seen Jesus revolutionize their communities. Jesus healed their friends. Jesus healed their family members. Jesus had brought justice for women and children and people who had been historically marginalized because of their gender or because of their beliefs or because, or because of their place in life. 
And, and I think sometimes when we read this story of this angry mob that's assaulting and trying to kill Jesus, we like to see, we, we like to see it through this lens as if it's a group of people who are just unreasonable and violent and angry, and they're nothing like us. I, I just want to offer you a different perspective. Because if you really want to begin to see the type of friendship that Jesus is offering you, if you really want to begin to see the type of commitment that Jesus is willing to make to you, if you really want to see the way that Jesus was willing to become completely vulnerable for you, it's really not helpful to see yourself as a neutral, innocent bystander in that story. And in fact, I really don't even think there's a, there, there's a such thing as a neutral response to Jesus. So I just want to encourage you to insert yourself in that story as part of that angry mob. And you might not even know why you're there, but just consider this. You're there and you're hurling assaults and really you're consenting to the killing of the most innocent, loving, selfless person who's ever lived. And when you, when you see yourself as a part of this angry mob, you'll begin to see the depth of Jesus' unwavering commitment to you. That his commitment to you doesn't depend on your faithfulness. It depends entirely on his. And this will help you see that he became completely transparent and vulnerable for you. He allowed himself to be completely exposed. He absorbed all the shame and the guilt and the punishment for sin that we deserve. He did that for you. And it wasn't because you were a good friend to him. It wasn't because you were a neutral, innocent bystander. He did that because he's the type of friend who will always let you in and never let you down. When you see Jesus in this way, that through his death, your sins are completely forgiven, that the God who can see all the way into the deepest, darkest recesses of your heart has completely forgiven you. Look, the more you come to grips with that reality, the more transparent you're gonna be in your friendships, the less it's gonna bother you when people point out your flaws or reveal the areas of your life that you know need to change. Look, the more you allow Jesus' radical transparency to be the basis of your transparency, the more transparent you'll become. And the more you make Jesus' radical commitment to you the basis for your commitment and your relationships, the more committed you'll become. Look, just like David's life was saved through Jonathan's sacrificial friendship, we're saved through Jesus' sacrificial friendship. And making Jesus' friendship with us the basis of our friendships with others is the only way we're going to find the power to be the kind of friends who have this enduring faithfulness and unwavering commitment that can carry the people that we care about most through the adversity that they face in this life. Let me pray for us. Jesus. Jesus, I think a, a reasonable starting point for me and you is to, for me to completely acknowledge what a terrible friend I've been, not, not just towards you, but towards the people in my life. And, and Jesus, I think um, what's, what's markedly amazing to me, what, what just gets my attention every time I hear this is that you, for, you because of your goodness, you because of your faithfulness, you because of your great love, um, while I was a sinner, while we were sinners, you demonstrated kindness to us by, by forfeiting everything that was yours, by sacrificing your life 
um, for us on our behalf so that we could be set free, so that we could be welcomed in to this kind of life-shaping, healthy, healthy friendship with you that can revolutionize every area of our lives. Jesus, we want to be friends that al- always let people in. We want to be the type of friends that never let people down. And I don't know how we do that to any degree whatsoever without first being revolutionized by your friendship. Jesus, acquaint us with that more deeply. Transform us by your love and your grace in ways that we didn't even realize were possible. And Jesus, turn us into the type of friends that we need to be to carry the folks that we love, the people in our community through the adversity that we know we're gonna face. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness. And all God's people said, amen.